Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. One of the foundations of uh, capitalism is the idea of, in fact, it's entirely founded on the idea of the autonomous individual that's self-reliant and doesn't depend on others and is not in some way, is free to make uh, all their own choices. And also inherent in this belief is the idea that the individual is somehow... Um, molded or shaped to an, a lasting set of characteristics or traits, an identity, a self, a soul that is inherent throughout most of life. And uh, really, so much of our criminal justice system, our institutions, uh, the way we look at uh, and characterize people in our culture is this idea that you you have these traits or the, this personality that is somehow there throughout your life. That's not a matter of being shaped by context or early life events that can be shifted. Uh, in capitalism, if you're a felon, you're viewed a felon for the rest of your life. You are, at least in our branch of, or our version of it, um, we don't tend to hold a lot of stock in our mythos in the idea that people can change or are fluctuate. Um, one of the dominant mythos in our culture is this meme of... Uh, if you're, if you, I see this in uh, movies all the time. They start, the movie starts with the retired detective or cop who's finally given up the rough-and-tumble years of his uh, life on the force. He's finally gotten to retirement. And then some serial killer is released from prison that he uh, helped put away years ago. And even though he doesn't want to be called back into the action, he winds up being sucked back in because deep down in him, he's a cop. And deep down, the serial killer is a serial killer, and nobody changes. <laughs> You're either good or bad. That's, uh, that's kind of the sort of underlying foundation that allows our institutions to treat people as inhumanly as we do. Uh, and certainly all of the dominant religions that are uh, endemic to our culture have this view that people have a soul uh, that you are born with and is there with you and, and many takes on religions such as Calvinism it's kind of predetermined even what your entire life will look like you're kind of stuck with this identity um, we even have this Santa Claus myth which is probably one of the more it sounds so nice, but it's actually a kind of a brutal myth that there's this figure that's spying on you as children and at the end of the year rewarding you 
We see it in the culture, the Willy Wonka myths, where there's the good children who wind up getting sucked into vats of chocolate or turned into television sets, and then there's the good child who's polite. And So there's this idea deeply embedded in our culture of this identity that's affixed and solid and immutable and... Uh, it creates this sense as well that if we have any struggles in our life or any challenges, we begin to think of ourselves as broken rather than simply influenced by early life events which make certain uh, relationships or work environments sort of challenging and we just simply need to uh, go about healing. Uh, no, it's some, we, we believe that there's something permanently uh, broken in us so the Buddha, around 2,500 years ago, broke with all of the dominant spiritual practices of his day when he pronounced uh, in the Anatta Lakana Sutta this idea called Anatta, which means um, there is no fixed, lasting identity. What is our psyche is constantly shifting um, it is constantly in flux. There is no inner you that is uh, absolutely consistent from your childhood to where you are now. And the Buddha, in this teaching, uh, asked his, the practitioners around him to observe closely their thoughts, their feelings, their body sensations, in turn, one by one, their perceptions of the world and their just the quality of their consciousness. And over time, he said, is anything you're observing fixed or static or constant? And they said, after a time, no. Everything we watch changes and shifts. And, and in total, when you put all of those together, the psyche is always in this state of flow. There's no constancy to it. There's no me that is uh, concretized. Right? I'm just something that uh, he in uh, some teachings it's like the Buddha's conception of who our psyche is, a, is um, compared with a river. If you point to a river there's a river there but each moment of time, the river is different in the sense that sometimes there's leaves in it, sometimes it's muddy, sometimes it's clear, sometimes there's ice flowing in it, sometimes there's dead things floating in it. I don't know, I'm going too far with this metaphor. but uh, uh, So that's, on one level, there is a river there, but on another level, it's always shifting and changing. It's never the same from any moment to the next. And that uh, is what the Buddha said is the human psyche. It's constantly in flow, shifting. There's no fixed, solid identity change and uh, is always possible. Even though our traits and our habits and our routines can seem very, very deeply ingrained, uh, there's this core vision in the Dharma that uh, if we make certain changes or shifts in the way we 
uh, approach uh, how we relate to our own life experience, we can actually shift ourselves in directions that make life easier and less stressful. We're all actually, while this sounds to many, this might sound kind of odd and difficult to accept, it's certainly in his time this teaching was very radical. Uh, and it wasn't until the 1700s when uh, I believe uh, Hume, a Western philosopher, realized the exact same thing with his bundle theory, that there is no static self. So it took a long time for the West to catch up. And now, today, in contemporary psychology and neuroscience, this idea of the lasting soul, the something that's inherent or something that inside of us is... Uh, represents who we are is no longer plausible at all. Uh, why is that? Well, multiple clinical studies show that people's idea of who they are, how they feel about themselves, how they think, are all primed by context, by interactions, by uh, unconscious, neurocepted experiences. In other words, we are changing uh, all the time. Neuroscience shows that the brain is a modular system where there is no central hub in charge. There's actually a bunch of different local regions taking care of different tasks. So you have your occipital lobe, which is doing your sight, and your somatosensory, which is defining body sensations and creating a sense of your body and what you can do with it. There's your temporal lobe, which helps with hearing and memory. There's, you know, different parts of the brain taking care of different things. You have the midbrain, which is uh, advanced fight, flight, freeze, caretaking and food uh, and so forth. The higher logical systems in the frontal lobe, which uh, are cognition and higher emotional processing. They're all disparate regions working on disparate things. And at the very end, they are creating behaviors and emotional states and impulses. So why is it it feels to us like there's something in me that's constant, right? Why do I feel like there's something in me that's kind of the same from this morning till now? Why do I feel like I have some constant thread? Well, that is actually a miraculous illusion that's created by one small part of the brain that Gazaniga called the interpreter. The interpreter's job is to sit there and after we come up with the impulses and after we come up with the emotional states and the feelings and the body states and the way we breathe, the interpreter at the very last it's the last part of processing jumps in and it makes it look like it's all its responsibility. <laughs> Even though it's coming in last and narrating it, there's this trick where we consciously backdate all of our impulses to seem like they are happening as a result of our thinking. But actually our thinking comes along at the very end of the chain. 
And thinking or thought or the interpreter's job is simply, it's a little bit been a, likened to the monkey in the back of the elephant. It's riding around. The elephant is deciding whether to go right or left. The elephant's deciding whether to stop or go. And it's just the monkey afterwards is saying, yeah, I chose to do that. And it tells a story about why it sh it, the elephant went left or right. And the monkey really believes it's tugging the elephant's ears and driving the elephant, but it's not. The elephant is, and that's the elephant in this case is our pre-conscious, multiple different regions that are decentralized and localized and are constantly processing different stimuli and coming up with different emotional responses and impulses. And it's just that interpreter that makes it seem that there's a me that's constant to it all. Now, if this sounds hard to grasp, that's okay. It runs counter to probably everything that uh, is underlined and presented in the dominant mythology that we are surrounded by. Uh, but uh, it's important to understand just how decentralized the mind is. Uh, when we get too caught up in uh, agendas that do not take into account our, these other regions of the brain. When the interpreter really desperately wants to gain control, it uh, will become increasingly anxious when it doesn't always win out. And it will be constantly surprised by the amount of times we experience behaviors and emotions that don't fit our plan, that don't fit the agenda, that just don't work out. So, um, do you want to turn on the air conditioner, by the way? It's kind of like a, a stuffy. Thanks. Um, when the uh, meditation starts, also, we'll maybe, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> hopefully by then it'll get a little cooler. So, um, we have uh, this experience where we want to be in control, but we procrastinate, we have panic attacks, anxiety attacks, where we stall, where we have emotional outbursts, and it becomes very clear that we're not, that conscious thought is not running the show all the time. So this realization is important to keep in mind. The more we learn how to interpret our emotions, to know when we are emotionally in a good place to follow our impulses, to know when it's time to hold back and stop and not act is good. And by the way, the only, and Benjamin Labeff, the great neurologist's clinical research, he found that the only role that consciousness plays in behavior is not in creating impulses or ideas to act. It doesn't create any of our uh, drives or choices. What it does do, though, is consciousness at times, if we're not too stressed out, if we're relaxed and calm, consciousness can override a really, really shitty idea and stop us 
from saying something that's destructive or acting out. As Labette's studies show, he said, we don't have free will, we have free won't. If you'd like to know the literal science of it, all of our impulses arise about uh, almost a third of a second before we become consciously, even before thought appears. Thought appears right before we act physically on the impulse. So there's this brief window between what's called the action potential, where you want to get up and go, you want to say something, you want to, you know, you want to take an action. And there's this brief window where consciousness can go, hold on. But if we're too stressed out, if we're too anxious, if there's too much emotion present, then the ability to override is flushed out and will follow the impulse for better or worse. Sometimes the impulse might be fine. Sometimes impulses to flee or fight or to bond with someone or to uh, forgive or to whatever the impulse is, sometimes they're great. Sometimes, though, our impulses are not so smart. Sometimes they're instigated by earlier life experience that has trained us to be needlessly defensive, needlessly fearful. For example, if you grow up in a family where one caretaker was financially irresponsible and you get into a relationship, you might be deeply concerned or frightened about financially uh, trusting anyone. That would be understandable given what you've been trained by your childhood, but still we have to know when it's important to stop and to see what's really happening in the present rather than reacting to what our past experience has told us to expect. And it's only when we're calm enough that we can do that. Now, before I launch into how, to, how we do that, uh, I should also note that it's not so easy to simply say that um, while there is no constant self that's fixed for the entirety of our lives, the Buddha never said that we don't have a self in any given moment of our life. Right now, you have an identity. It's comprised of thoughts and feelings, body sensations, perceptions. But it's just not the same in the future. This is important because in therapy, uh, which is my background as well, uh, is the idea that people have some sense of a self is important because without a self, in one way, there's no resilience, there's no ability to bounce back from setbacks. If we don't have a sense of, oh, I have capabilities, I have strengths, I'm resourceful, I'm a survivor, there's something about me that is strong, then when we go through a breakup or we get fired from a job or there's a creative setback in our life, we just stay down. So the ability to be resilient requires some sense of there's inside of me some resources, right? But at the same time, we have to balance that with not believing that that self is fixed or solid. The Buddha answered this by saying that it's our job right now 
to take care of our future selves, to think of our future selves almost as like children of ourselves right now. In other words, the actions I take now will create the impulses, feelings, and karma, the emotional state of my future existence. I don't know what I'll be like, what I'll feel, what I'll be concerned with in the future, but I have some responsibility to that future self to take care of myself by essentially developing adult coping strategies that will protect me. The Buddha said, hold yourself dear. Be ever vigilant, guarding your thoughts and actions, refraining from harm for the purity and impurity of your future self depends on it. In other words, there's no there's so many actions and so many life experiences that will shape us down the road. It's, it's, the Buddha said even trying to figure that out, what you'll look like in the future is a complete source of suffering, a waste of time. But what we can do is make sure that we don't today act in ways that will create shame, uh, guilt, mistrust, needless isolation in our future lives. So, given the modularity of the brain, our job is to find a way to integrate all of the different messages and processes into a kind of coherent experience where we don't act out of harmful impulses and where we maintain or retain the ability to stop when our impulses might be harmful to ourselves or to others. That's kind of the gold standard. And yet at the same time, also know when to follow our gut impulses, when to not get in the way of our intuition, when to stand back, when to, when to hold back the thinking and allow our impulses, our intuition to take charge. So the Buddha broke down our experience into what's called the four foundations of mindfulness, which are, and we'll go through them briefly now, and then we'll actually do the four foundations of mindfulness meditation. The whole point of this meditation is self-integration. It's about no longer thinking of oneself as, I'm my thoughts, and it's the job of everything else in me to fall in line but rather to view oneself as one, a very basic state of breath and body sensations, which are the expression of our, what's called our reptilian brain in some, it's the, ba the brain stem. And the basic way we breathe and hold our body is sending us messages that tell us whether we feel safe or unsafe. That's the reptilian brain's job. When we hold our breath or we breathe rapidly, the brainstem is saying, I'm scared shitless. I'm frightened. And that's sending a message that will then be received by the midbrain, which will create a different feeling tone in the body, which will then be triggered by the right hemisphere, which will create emotions. So sometimes those, the feeling of fear or 
you know, that sense of alarm is justified. We're in an unsafe situation. We're being threatened. We're being in a environment where people are uh, acting in ways that are dangerous. Much of the time in our contemporary world, our the brainstem is sending needless fear signals that is making us apprehensive and withdrawn and, uh, and mistrustful. Uh, because, frankly, the way we live today is so vastly different than the way we've lived for the, va the vast bulk of our species history, which was spent in hunter-gatherer collectives, where shit, bad shit, could happen at any time. So we have brainstems and amygdalas that have like this sort of um, quick-to-fire settings that make us guarded and fearful, even when some, just because somebody sends us a dirty look, or because somebody doesn't make eye contact, or because somebody blocks this, the entrance to a subway car, or whatever. So, uh, one, starting with noting the breath and the body. There's an interesting study. Uh, I love this study because it shows how important the body is in creating all of our behaviors and our beliefs. There was a study by the University of Pittsburgh where they had, they broke people up into two groups. And one group they put in a really comfortable chair. And then the other group they would make one by one sit in a really uncomfortable chair or stand. And they would ask one question. They'd ask people to talk about their relationships. And they found that when people are seated in, seated in comfortable chairs, they tend to say positive things. But if you switch them to an uncomfortable chair or you make them stand, then they start to find problems in their relationships. Their entire view of their lives becomes starts to shift. Stepper and Strack, two cognitive psychologists, found that people who stand in an upright position versus a slumped posture have far greater degrees of efficacy in the world. And if you have somebody who stands with an upright posture, you instruct them to slump, their entire views of their agency in the world begin to shift. So being aware of whether your breath is telling you that the brainstem is in a, essentially is in a fear state, is in a threatened state, and whether your body is in a state where it believes you have efficacy or it feels overmatched is important because everything flows from the brain stem. The brain is bottom up in its processing. The second foundation is what the Buddha called, that first was the body. The second is gut feelings. Gut feelings are, or generally we now know, run the front of the body from the face to the throat to the chest to the belly. That's where you feel your intuition. Your intuition is kind of like a higher order reptilian brain. It's created by your midbrain or what used to be known as the limbic system. And your limbic system has more of a job than the basic brainstem's job, which is simply to tell you whether you're going to survive or not. Your midbrain is telling you whether to fight or flee or freeze or bond or take care of someone 
or get food or something that feels good. So you can see that now the story's a little bit more complex. This brain, by the way, your midbrain, is known as the mammalian brain. So we have a little lizard and we have a little mouse, right? And the mouse is creating these gut feelings, these impulses that tell us to withdraw, that tell us to be frightened, that tell us to attack, that tell us to be compassionate and nurture, that tell us to look for food or supplies. And those feelings are constantly talking to us, but we're not often very aware of what they're saying. Sometimes we go right along with them. If we feel we're at a party, we meet someone, we have a tight stomach and a contraction in the chest and the throat becomes contracted, they essentially, the midbrains through the insula, through the vagal vagus nerve is telling us, hey, I don't trust this person. Let's end this conversation. Let's pay attention or go somewhere else. And a lot of the time, uh, we just follow it. We just go along with it. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes we're very, our gut impulses are fine. Sometimes our gut impulses aren't so fine. For instance, suppose you grew up in a family where you had an unreliable connection with a caregiver. So now in your relationships, you're constantly choosing un emotionally unavailable partners, people who don't meet your needs. Nobody here has ever had that happen, but uh, you're all fine. You're all picking wonderful people. Your intuition is absolutely spot on. I don't know why I'm talking about this. It's just in counseling everybody I meet, I'm working with them on this. What that means is that love and attraction was defined in early life with unreliability. And you will start to get excited and feel the somatic sensations of attraction when you are with someone that you can unconsciously tell is not emotionally available, is unreliable. Literally, the feelings that were and they, the things to look for were set in childhood and we unconsciously through a process known as neuroception where we unconsciously process all the nonverbal cues, we then have gut feelings that tell us, ooh, I like this person. They're completely psychotic. <laughs> How fascinating and exciting. This is somebody I should be dating. Uh, whereas she's available or he's available and emotionally trustworthy, they're kind of boring. So sometimes we have to learn to override the impulses and not follow them. If you're an interior designer and somebody says, hey, what should I paint the walls in my apartment? And yellow is just jumps up. When you think of yellow, there's this nice, relaxed gut feeling that says, yay, go with it. That's the fast circuits of fast pre-conscious circuits that uh, common called them that are doing really fast processing and said, you know, in the past I was in a place just like this and we painted the wall yellow and it looked great. So you say yellow, there's no thinking. If you get involved with thinking and discursive thought, you'll get in your way 
and you'll tell them to do something that's not good. Sometimes, if we have expertise, we have to get out of our way. A painter can't overthink whether to make one area of a canvas red or green or what kind of paint gesture. They have to do it intuitively. So if you've got expertise and your expertise shows you you're good at something, it's your job to turn off the thinking, to turn off the evaluative parts. And that's what this process helps us with as well. So the third, the second foundation is simply knowing what the front of your body, the vagal vagus nerve is saying. Is it saying, relax, connect, freeze, flee? What is it telling me right now? Is it telling me to uh, take care of someone? Is it telling me to ac accumulate something? And it all starts with basic feeling states that are either comfortable or uncomfortable. The Buddha said, when experiencing a pleasant feeling, know I'm experiencing a pleasant feeling. When I'm experiencing a painful feeling, know I'm experiencing a painful feeling. So run through all the feelings that are present. Simply know what's going on. Know what that part of your brain is sending, is telling you to do. The th third foundation is your mood and where your attention is being drawn to. It turns out that mood and attention is governed by right hemispheric processes. It's the right brain, as it were. And the right brain by adult life is largely implicit, unconscious. We don't have as much control of it. But almost all of our times that we have emotional outbursts or we become we procrastinate or we become perfectionists or we do something that gets in the way of our plans, if it's not just pure fear, then it's the fact that the right hemisphere says, I'm not too happy about this. I'm going to shift your attention away from the thing you want to focus on and I'm going to shift it to Amazon. And you're just going to, because I don't want you to apply for this new job or I don't want you to go on this trip or I don't want you to write this email because I don't feel that happy about it. I'm going to switch your attention over there and I'm going to keep it over there as long as I want because I don't want you to do this thing that you think is a great idea but I'm not too happy about. So what is it that your right hemisphere cares about? Well, your right hemisphere is a social part of the brain that cares about how connected you are with other people and how safe you are in a more advanced way in the world. So we've gone from the reptilian brain, which is just, am I going to survive or am I going to be killed or eaten, to the mammalian brain, which is the mouse brain, to which is the, uh, should I bond, fight, flight, freeze, should I get food? Now we're up to the inner child brain. This is the largely nonverbal part of the mind that shifts our attention and it really cares about how well connected I am to other people. And when it doesn't feel very good about a plan we have, it won't just tell us, hey, I don't like this plan, because it doesn't have language skills like that. The way it works is by pulling our attention away by shifting and focusing the mind, by 
becoming fixated on something we don't want to think about by bringing up memories that we'd rather forget. That's the way it talks to us. So the more we understand what the right hemisphere is saying, the more we can incorporate it into our decisions. So the Buddha said with that, know when the mind is aroused by or clouded by self-centeredness or whether it's objective and calm, whether it's distracted or present, whether it's jumping around from one thing to another or settled, whether it's fixated or spacious and open. And obviously, when it comes to making rational decisions, the more spacious, settled, present it is, the more we can override emotions. But on the other hand, our job is first to know what it's telling us before we make a decision. Lastly, and now we're going to after this meditate, the last thing we focus on is our thoughts. But we don't climb inside our thoughts. We simply observe whether the thoughts are skillful or unskillful. That's it. What are skillful thoughts? Well, let's start with what are unskillful. Unskillful thoughts are always speculative. They're always guessing. They're guessing about what's going to happen to me in the future. What do other people think about me? How do I compare with other people? What is the nature of my true self? The Buddha said these four kinds of thinking are always invariably unskillful. What is, what are, what are skillful thoughts? Skillful thoughts focus our attention on what is present in our lives right now and how we can best assist ourselves in getting something that's skillful accomplished. For example, if we're in a meditation and we're just trying to breathe, skillful thinking is, okay, how can I make breathing interesting and fun so that I can develop a settled mind? Unskillful thinking is, I sh I sh I'm a shit at meditating. I'll never be good at meditating. Look at that person over there next to me. That person looks like a fucking Buddha. They don't, they don't have the neurosis that I have. There's something about other people that can meditate and I can't meditate. So the difference is one kind of thinking is task-oriented, is focused on what's right in front of us, is what I can do right now to make my life easier and better, but not in a harmful, selfish way. The unskillful thing is always telling a story about me, how I relate to other people, how I'll always be in the future. So that, in a nutshell, you just had, in a nutshell, the entire theory of uh, non-self and an introduction to the four foundations. So your brains are now completely filled up. Now we're going to put it all into practice, and we're going to see how we can achieve self-integration through meditation. All right. So, just settling in. Find a really, really comfortable, upright position. If we're... If there's any part of you that's inclined to slouch, and by slouch I mean your head shifting in front of your chest as so, try to tilt your head slightly back like you're looking at a tall building. 
But let the rest of your body be as relaxed as possible. So we want to essentially find a nice midway between being alert, but also being relaxed. The alertness can happen simply by tilting your head slightly back and making sure you don't allow the head to fall in front of your chest. But the rest of the body, we're just going to take a moment right now to relax a little. So, let's take a nice, full, complete in-breath through the nose like you're smelling a really nice scent of candle. And while you breathe in, if you'd like, lift your shoulders up like you're trying to lift them above your head. And then as you breathe out slowly through the mouth, dropping the shoulders. And if it feels right for you, gently, slightly pull them back just, just enough to open up your chest a little bit so that your chest is not contracted and tight. And already we're sending a message to the brain stem saying that we are safe because our breath is long, our body is relaxed, the vagal vagus understands that they chest is open, so this will play a great benefit for both the reptilian and the mammalian brain. So the second in-breath, pulling the belly, the stomach really taut, you're holding it in, and then as you breathe out through the mouth, relax the belly. The abdominal muscles are where the bulk of the, not only the vagal vagus cluster is found, but also abdominal area that has a second, literally a second brain, a hundred million neurons. And depending upon how we hold, we hold our stomach, instructs that second brain, whether it's safe to digest or hold off. If our abdomen is really tight all the time, we're sending a message saying, I'm not that safe. So third complete in-breath through the nose and squinching the muscles in the face, really, you know, pinched nose, like locked jaw, squinched eyes, and then as you breathe out, relax the jaw, smooth out the forehead and then really massage with your mind the micro muscles around the eyes and see if you can send a encouragement to the eyes to settle in the eye sockets the more the eyes are settled behind closed eyelids the less they bounce around the easier it is to settle the mind That's great. So take a moment to remind yourself how your body feels when you arrive at one of those really special places in life, that beach chair at your favorite beach or that seat by the river 
when you arrive at that special place in the country, when you've gone on a hike and you've reached a secluded spot by a lake, what does it feel like to arrive in life? What happens to your body? Your body tells your mind how to Your body essentially frames the emotions and perceptions that flow from experience is deeply primed by the state of the body. So try to create a body that tells you that you're safe, that you're with people that are accepting, it's, this is a moment you've been trying to attain. You've traveled a long distance to get here. So just bring your awareness now to the breath. And for a little while, we're just going to stay and observe the breath just knowing whether it's a full breath, a full in-breath, a full, long, relaxed out-breath, or whether it's a breath that feels shallow or short or held. And given that we're in a safe space, it's entirely appropriate here to, if the breath feels slightly shallow or rapid or there's any quality in it that's not fully relaxed, we want to train or tell the brainstem, the reptilian, the little lizard in us, we want to tell it to relax we're safe. And we do that by relaxing, soothing the breath, allowing the breath in, releasing the breath out. Long exhalations. If it's difficult to pay attention to the breath for a while, just count inhalations and exhalations widen the area of the breath, so don't just pay attention to the air at the tip of the nose or the chest. Become aware of the entire body breathing, following the breath energy in the inhalation by moving up the body and then following the exhalation by scanning down the body.
try not to accomplish or attain or achieve anything. Just use this as a time to relax and just pay attention to the parts of your experience that we generally overlook, which has been crying out for our attention for so long. Starting just with the most basic processes of the brain, how we breathe, using it to tell ourselves that we're safe, that we don't need to flee or withdraw, that we can relax into this experience. So let's go to the second foundation, which is putting aside the little lizard and now communicating with the mouse brain, the mammalian midbrain, which is telling us whether to flee or fight or freeze, whether to caretake whether to hunt for food, whether to connect. And the way we know is by familiarizing ourselves with the settings of the vagal vagus nerve running down the face, the throat, chest and the belly, which directly speak to us, telling us how we feel in any given moment, and the subtleties over time we can learn to discern. So just bringing awareness to how you feel. Does the stomach feel tight or relaxed? Does the chest feel contracted, like with heartbreak or open, like it feels when connected with safe people? Does the throat feel tight, when, like when you feel around people that you can't safely speak, or does your throat feel relaxed? What emotions are being primed by the muscles in the face? And if you like, you can visualize something that's going on in your life and just see how you feel. What does your stomach and chest and throat and face feel about this relationship or this person or this project? Just hold an image in your mind and see what gut feelings arise.
when someone is safe, you might feel your belly relax, your shoulders relax, your chest open, softening the muscles in the face. So let's move now to the third foundation, which is moods and state of attention. One of the many ways the right brain and inner child speak to us. Just notice now, does your mind feel spacious and open or contracted and tight? Is your awareness jumpy? And if so, where is your awareness being, your attention being pulled? What is it being pulled to? Is it being pulled to a sensation or a feeling? What is your right brain trying to tell you by where it directs and pulls your attention? Is it pulling your attention to an event from the past or an anticipation of the future? Is it pulling your attention to a quality that's present? Again, this higher region of the brain speaks to us not through words or ideas or thoughts, but speaks to us through mood, 
and especially it directs our attention, pulls us at times away from what we want to think about. Sometimes there's an overall feeling of anger or sadness or grief, knowing if there's a dominant mood. And finally, let's bring our awareness to observe our thoughts. Relating to our thoughts not as if they are our self or our identity. We are something far bigger. We are simply right now awareness. And our thoughts are just the product of one region of the brain just as much as our feelings, emotions, and breath, and body are products of other regions in the brain. Try not to identify with your thoughts, but view them and view them in terms of whether they're helpful or unhelpful. If they're helpful, they'll be focused on what's available to you right now how you can relax and take care of yourself, how you can soothe yourself. If your thoughts are not particularly useful, they'll worry about something that's entirely speculative or out of your control. They'll worry or be preoccupied with someone or some thing that's not present. They'll try to work through issues that are better approached through intuition. And your thoughts will be particularly unskillful if they start
becoming obsessive and intrusive as a way to repress feelings and emotions that need to be experienced. If a thought's skillful, just listen to it, but don't identify with it or climb into it. If a thought's unskillful, just acknowledge it, bring your attention back to some other quality or sensation that's present and let it recede from your awareness. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl and when you hear the sound, take your time and just open your eyes enough to look at the ground in front of you and try to bring this fully mindful state of awareness where you are aware of or have a sense of how you're breathing how you're feeling, what mood you're in, and whether your thoughts are useful or intrusive right now. Try to bring this practice into the rest of your life. Mindfulness is not just from the cushion. It's a way to lead a fully integrated wiser, more skillful life. So these core emotions, uh, if we can get past the defense mechanism, which is all the, the, the sort of uh, repetitive thoughts, which are there largely to try, that's the interpreter trying to make sense of why we feel the way we feel. And it almost invariably, Gazaniga showed in his research, gets it wrong. Literally with split brain patients, he showed that the left hemisphere never really knows why we feel the way we feel. And it's constantly guessing and it's very often pointing us in the wrong direction. So the first thing to do is to sit with 
the somatic experience itself find the fear. It might be in the stomach, it might be in the throat or the chest or the face. And just ask yourself, how does it feel to be vulnerable, to not trust, to not be certain if someone is safe or not? Just ask the feeling. And then connect with that part of the body and then allow your mind to visualize a an image-based representation of yourself at a younger age when you first felt abandoned or mistreated or that being emotionally disclosing and vulnerable led to disappointment or shame or rejection. So you're finding, essentially in your body, you're connecting with a, what we could call represent a visual representation of the inner child. And then ask that inner child both I hear you, I know you don't feel safe. Is there a way I can make you feel safer without withdrawing completely or running completely? So it's like a mother talking to a child and the mother's not saying to the child, okay, you're right, we're not gonna go to the dentist because you're frightened of the dentist. But the mother might say, so is there some way I can make this easier for you? Is there some way we can do this where you'll feel safer. It's a, it's a process of learning how to push ourselves to develop ever more adult coping strategies. A key process in this is, uh, we know from the work of Casalino and others, uh, to not give into avoidance coping, which is to avoid difficult conversations. And part of what allows us to feel safer and to be less, to wind up less triggered and vulnerable is to learn how to set better boundaries and state needs clearly. Um, when we've grown up in environments where one caregiver was not particularly trustworthy or reliable or we've been through emotionally wounding relationships after childhood. Uh, it creates defensive learnings, which that when we're younger, we can't say hey to a parent or to like somebody we're in a first relationship with. We can't say, okay, so right now you're enmeshing, you're transgressing, you're, you're, you're judging rather than mirroring my emotions. You're, what I need from you is X. And if you don't do X, I'm going to have to distance or cut off the conversation. The more we go into stating boundaries and stating needs clearly, the less we rely on avoidant coping and the less also vulnerable we feel, the more the inner child feels safe. So that's up for us to understand rather than try to figure out whether uh, prematurely whether someone is safe, if we set good enough boundaries, we take it slow, incrementally, we pay attention to whether they're emotionally mirroring and or whether they are subtly telling us that our feelings are not okay. The more we, ch we ask about previous relationships and know whether this person constantly judges their exes or is positive about the people that they've had in their life, those are ways to make smarter choices.